have a guest. We have a guest in the attic tonight. It's Werner. He's here, here. tonight with us. Come here, Werner. We'll see if we can get his purring on the, on the microphone. Hey, Mr. Man. Hello and welcome to Stumble Upon. I'm Austin. And I'm Emily, and that's Werner. Today we're discussing Billy Wilder's The Apartment. As always, there will be plenty of swearing and spoilers. But if that doesn't scare you, then pop some champagne and prepare yourself, because toxic masculinity is going to try to ruin the party again. Austin, would you like to give us a synopsis of The Apartment? I would love to give you a synopsis of the apartment. A Manhattan insurance clerk tries to rise in his company by letting its executives use his apartment for their trysts. But complications and a romance of his own ensues. That's a really mediocre synopsis. It's an excellent mediocre synopsis. I mean, I don't know why I would watch that movie. Yeah. I, if I wanted to be bored to death, I would watch that movie. Yeah, it sounds terrible. It sounds really dry. Like, it sounds like... Oh, everybody's going to be kind of stuffy and shitty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have fun at all. Not at all. So it's not like that. No. But hopefully you know that before you start listening to this episode, because as always, we'll tell you the end right at the beginning. Yeah, mostly mostly this is all about the end. Yeah, we always talk about the end because we're, you know, just here to talk about the end of because, everything. Because really that's how we make a film. You have to start about knowing where you're going so that you can get there in the, the proper due course. Absolutely. And therefore, how could we talk about it if we're not going to talk about the end? Yeah. And, and frankly, if you don't know, this is a film by Billy Wilder, who is an incredible filmmaker from the, the, the 50s and 60s, who made some really, really important cinema. But almost all of his cinema is filled with this joy of life, like Sabrina, like uh, Some Like It Hot, even his more... Uh, Acidic films like uh, uh, Ace in the Hole or Double Indemnity have this incredible joy for how human beings interact with e- with each other. Like the Edward G. Robinson character in uh, Double Indemnity is just a joy to be around. So you should not believe that fucking uh, synopsis. <laughs> Wait, from Double Indemnity, isn't Mr. Sheldrick... Yeah. The lead in that? Yeah, he's he's the good bad guy. Oh. Him and Barbara Stanswick. I love Barbara Stanswick. Yeah. We won't talk about her politics. No, we won't we won't do that. But like, we will talk about how she's such a great performer. Yeah, he made a run of really incredible films. Like he also co-wrote one of uh Lubitsch's last films. Did he really? Yeah. Uh Minushinka, I think it is, or something mm. of that regards. It's with Greta Garbo. It's really good. We'll have to watch that. Yeah. Anyway, like he w- he went on a run that very few filmmakers have ever matched or even come come close to to touching. Isn't that uh, what a talent? Yeah, what a fucking talent. And Lubitsch the, also. Yeah, yeah. And, and Wilder was a, a a gentleman who who escaped uh, Nazism mm-hmm. from from I think Vienna or, or Germany. I'm not exactly sure. Where. You know, don't quote us. Yeah, we're not historians. Oh, or or that smart. No, we're not pretending. Yeah. We just make movies, and so we talk about movies. Yeah. Most of the things that we say are the things that are in our heads, and who knows where those, come, those thoughts go. come from. If you need a film historian, mm-hmm. you should check out Sam Deegan's podcast, yeah. Twitch of the Death Nerve. Yeah. She's brilliant yeah. and really knows her stuff. Yeah. She does amazing uh, DVD commentary tracks. Yeah. We don't. For, for good reason. <laughs> but hopefully we'll make movies that she'll do DVD commentary tracks on. We, we can talk extra, what, extra. <laughs> extemporously uh, up, up, upon our no, thoughts apparently we can't even do that well i can't say the word it's it's equal to my spelling it like i used to believe that if i can't spell it i shouldn't be able to say it but i have long passed it i'm glad you moved on from that <laughs> yeah. idea i would only be saying like three letter words <laughs> <laughs> all right so on that note we'll start the podcast <laughs> and here we go let's talk about the apartment so where do we begin i think that i first saw this film with you like a few years ago, like it it wasn't it wasn't something that I grew up with or or that I was really introduced to. Even though I had watched some Billy Wilder, like in my college years, specifically Double Indemnity, and some like it hot. But like this film, I came to much later. As as I've also kind of come to Jack Lemon, generally later in my my experience with cinema. Like I wasn't a huge Jack Lemon 
fan. Like I knew, I mostly knew Jack Lemmon kind of from his, the reference that they made of his character in Glengarry Glen Ross on the Simpsons, that Gil was always going to get the, finally get the sale, get the, get the job done. But I, I really, like, I really had no frame of reference for this film when we first saw it a a few years ago, but it's, it's kind of quickly become something that I, that I really, really look forward to watching around this season, especially around New Year's. There's something really wonderfully life-affirming about the film itself, about kind of the interest in humanity or finding one's humanity in a in a corporate situation, in a in an environment that really does suck your soul out of you. I think I first saw Jack Lemmon playing Grumpy Old Men with Walter Matthau, mm-hmm. who I've I really liked his work always as a kid. Um, but no, I also didn't know this film before we watched it for the first time a couple years ago. I hadn't really paid attention to Jack Lemmon as an actor. Um, but it is really a delight to discover his work over the last few years and kind of unpack his career because he was such a talent and such um just really wonderful performer. Mm-hmm. Him and uh, Shirley MacLaine in this film like, oh, yeah. are both just like I again like I didn't know Shirley MacLaine like at all like I'd kind of seen reference to her in some of the the films of the '90s like Steel Magnolias and the, mm-hmm. and and films like that but I had never really probably just a bias of mine of never really understood of how much of a powerhouse she was as like a comedic actor mm-hmm. and just an incredible presence somebody who had the same sort of screen presence and like joyful delight as 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 Audrey Hepburn in in Sabrina which mm-hmm. is also another Billy Wilder film like it, it it might be that he had a type or he directed towards a specific type even though he directed Marilyn Monroe and in, in uh Some Like It Hot and there's really <laughs> nothing you can do with uh, Marilyn Monroe she was just she was kind of a one of one. She was exactly what she was. She was a personality. Yeah. And and that's not to say that she wasn't a good actor or a good performer. Like she was incredible in the films that she was in, but she like it's not like she was not a chameleon in her in her performance. Mm-mm. No, no, no. Um interesting you bring up another Jack Lemon performance. Yeah. It's fascinating to watch his performance in the apartment because it's so while it could be con- conceived as manic in terms of his his movements and in terms of the energy he brings mm-hmm. it is not at all it's focused and particular but not in a kitschy way not like now where you might see something where you'd see a performer who's like trying to be physical mm-hmm. and it, it just wouldn't feel organic to the character or it wouldn't feel authentic yeah you know there's just something his performance every tiny little piece of it feels so well constructed and so well thought out in Mm -hmm. the world of cc baxter Mm -hmm. which is really special yeah as a performer as a director what would you what did you see in the performance well i saw a lot of space in framing for him like and i I, and first i i kind of like i really agree with you in the sense that like in today's performances of this ilk I fear we would get something closer to like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, mm-hmm. where where the physicality of the performance is outlandish, mm-hmm. or like Adam Sandler, yeah, in some of his um, not his P.T. Anderson work, mm-hmm. but where they let him do his thing mm-hmm. too much, yeah, and they don't rein it in. Yeah, it's there's something really really genuine about his his movement. It, it almost feels. Like, like I was commenting to you last night when we were watching the film about how it reminded me a bit of like Robin Williams's work, like that Robin Williams was always in motion. Like he's always like he's he's flowing through the scene and the and and you have to spatially within the frame have to give him enough room to actually make the movements that he's going to naturally come to. And you don't really know where he's going but I, I i kind of feel that like and i don't i don't know a lot about jack lemon's like history and performance and like where he came from as a physical actor or whatnot but it does feel a lot less uh like chaotic or 
undetermined. Like I think of the scene, there's a scene early-ish in the film where he, where CC Baxter, uh, Jack Lemon is trying to reorganize who's going to be staying at his uh, apartment and sleeping with their, whichever mistress. The sex dates. Yes. <laughs> Which like, by the way, like I couldn't help but think, and maybe this is the prude in me, how weird it would be to come home to an apartment where you know that two people just slept in your in your bed that were not that were not you and your partner and then be called by another member of your company to have them bring over and another date and them to then sleep in your bed it was so dirty like, I just kept thinking how many clean sets of sheets he, this guy must have in his place and how, how much he must he be going. You never saw him change sheets. So let's assume that it was the same pair of sheets for everybody. Yeah. Like, oh, it was so it, gross. It, it, it was probably not the cleanest apartment. And, no. and his neighbor's complaints about his his health and his uh, the sounds and all hoursness of his gross. perceived lifestyle like is probably really really more offensive than the actual act of having uh, <laughs> all the affairs that these people are having just the the multitude of uh illnesses the judgment yeah like the neighbors judging him is is rude yeah well it's technically he's a single guy he can do whatever the hell he wants exactly like the the only thing that i kind of find a find a massive issue with in in his choice of uh of how he lends his space out is how clean his his, mm. his bed and house would be, especially when later in the at a certain point in the film, uh, Shirley MacLaine's character comments about finding all the stuff in his, oh, in uh, his it, couch. couch. It just made me my skin crawl. Yeah, plus the couch is gross anyway and like falling apart. It's wonderfully staged. Yeah, I love the apartment. I love the setup of it. I mm. love. The placement of everything, how you can see through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You can see both the kitchen and the bathroom or in the bedroom yeah. in the same shot. So you can really get the depth of the apartment mm-hmm. when you're standing in the living room. It was really well designed. And yeah, I, I want to come back to that exact point because I think that's a really, really important thing to what this film actually does and is about. But to to finish off the, the, the previous question or mm-hmm. the thought that we were having... Uh, Lemon's movement in the scene where he's trying to reorganize who's coming to his uh, to his apartment the next week or within the next three days because he's sick from the night before and he needs mm-hmm. a night off to just go home and sleep. He the way he moves like he the shot is just a uh, is just a just a flat shot. There's no no camera movement. It's a static. It's a static shot. No camera movement. Nothing. It's a mid shot, so you can see his desk in front of him and his torso and head and above him, which is also really interesting because the the room that he's in in the first part of the film before he gets his promotions, like this this cattle call room of employees who are just doing this really terrible collating shitty job. Yeah, like just seems to go on forever and ever. It's wonderfully it, designed. It, it, it's endlessly. It, it, like we're it, the the room feels endless. Like he. Like him sitting at the desk and being sweaty and sick and checking his temperature, the way that he keeps moving his body to pick up uh, the telephone, to move the Rolodex, to write stuff down and change notations in his calendar, like how he moves through that scene. You don't really need any of the dialogue at all that happens. It's all so clearly told in a simple static shot that he moves through. And that's something that I find really, really impressive in his performance is I know, I know for, for film and for American films in specific of this ilk, specifically, specifically, he, you need dialogue to tell people what's going on, but he's such an interesting performer because I know all of what he's feeling. Mm -hmm. I know by his body language, how happy he is. And it's something that's different than what is done today in uh in cinema i have a feeling that if we were to perform that same scene now like he would be like kind of cuddled up and stationary and not wanting to move because we would direct him to be like achy and and sick and this instead of kind of manic and be like no no i have to get this done i have to do this i have to do this i have to do this and there's just this 
incredible energy exuding from him as he's moving in the static shot that tells everything about what's going on. And then you see him uh, sit back in the chair and kind of slump and lose all energy right after he finalizes the scheduling because his energy was put into, I need a night off. Ironically, he doesn't get, I need this night off. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, uh, that kind of falling back into the chair has so much more weight because we've just seen him leaning into the shot mm-hmm. and we've seen him do all this movement and exhaust himself to fall back in the chair only to find out he's got to go up and talk to the boss. Yeah. And he gets a boost of energy because he's got to go talk to the boss. It's so exciting. He never gets to talk to the boss. Mm-hmm. Boss has never met him before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's fun to watch his, um, his tonal shifts, which I think as you're saying, I don't know that we get too much of that in today's performance for your every man. Mm-hmm. Like a like a constant roller coaster of tonal shifts that aren't m- not insane, mm-hmm. as you were saying with the G- Jim Carrey, where it's just a ridiculously over the top. Mm-hmm. It's more subtle and nuanced, but it's very present in physicality. Yeah, very much like Robin Williams. Yeah, it, and it's interesting. I I I I said this last night, and I think it's I I do think it's true. I feel that Lemon is more of a of an everyman than. Tom Hanks or uh, Jimmy Stewart ever was. I I kind of feel like his his performance and his personality speaks to a different kind of everyman. Somebody who is kind of put upon and not like gifted with privilege. Because mm-hmm. like I like Tom Hanks and I like Jimmy Stewart and most things that I see them in. But they feel really, really privileged to mm-hmm. me. Like they come from a place that I feel like their characters generally come from a place it feels like they're supported. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like looking at Lemon in this film, we don't know anything about his fucking family. He doesn't like, have one. He they, says it. He yeah, doesn't have one. Yeah. End of story. He never. He never talks about them further. He doesn't have friends. Like as far back as the history goes, he just talks about the time that he shot himself in the knee when he was thinking about committing suicide. Because like, he was in love with his best friend's wife. Right. And then he moved from that town mm-hmm. to New York. From Cincinnati. From Cincinnati. You know Cincinnati. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a great... Because so then you see him leave you here. He has left his best friend mm-hmm. and moved away from that family mm-hmm. because it wasn't a good choice for him to be near and for his mental health. And now he's living in New York, but he's alone. He has no friends. Yep. It is clear he has no friends. He doesn't go out with friends. Um, to catch up with them whenever his apartment's being used. He's never at somebody else's apartment. Yep. He's never being invited out. He only meets strangers when he goes out. Like, it's clear he's totally in love with the Shirley MacLaine character. Mm -hmm. And when he goes, when he is forced out of his place for Christmas, Mm -hmm. he goes to the bar alone and drinks probably, what, nine martinis? Oh, yeah. All the olives lined up perfectly. Yep. And, and, And is just, like, like, he's relatable in that kind of sad sack, but really positive human spirit sort of way. Somebody who's who is constantly looking for the possibility of something greater coming along. And while he does like he's also he's also and the character is also written in such a way that he's kind of a weirdo creep. Because when oh, for sure. He, when he talks to Shirley McLean about uh uh going to the theater with him he knows way too much information about her life when she was born, what she weighs, where she lives now. Oh my god! Yeah, Shirley MacLaine takes that on the chin really well, yeah, and probably too well. Yeah, there's some bad vibes, bad yeah. vibes. Yeah, but but you're right. He knows too much. But on the other hand, I mean, like it's also a young perspective. It's mm-hmm. a very young kind of thing that you would do and now we all know you don't do that yeah. he's throwing up his red flags uh, right left and center he's like he's, he's doing okay. semi four with red flags be like don't date me i am not the person you well, should be with he's awesome but yeah. you shouldn't yeah okay note to self no nobody go look up people in the insurance files where yep. you work and take advantage of your power. Yep. But but I like I remember as a kid working in a library, you know, if you had a crush on somebody, you might be interested in looking up what books they read. I'm not saying I ever did that. No, you're not saying I that. I didn't. Yeah. But, you know, it might have been something <laughs> you'd be interested in finding out about who. Uh-huh. And um, that is not something you should do. Yeah. But it's what a kid would do. Yeah. They would be like so curious about somebody they had a crush on. They'd want to know everything about them if they can't get to talk to them. And and, and regardless of the the positivity or the best 
best aspect of it. It's part of human nature to be curious and to be unnecessarily curious about certain things. Like what he does with the information is he doesn't do he 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 doesn't do anything kind of creepy or No, he doesn't go doesn't go to her apartment, he doesn't go to her neighborhood. Yeah. So he, he d- he's basically Instagram stalking her. Yeah. He, he's he's checking out all the things she's tagged herself in and just <laughs> being like, "Oh, this is the life thing you've had. This is the this is the other thing that you've done." Yeah. So like it's not great. It's no, not ideal. But it's the everyman, right? Yeah. And it's like all the little touches that he has of mm-hmm. the everyman. Um, when he's waiting outside of the music man to take her to the show, mm-hmm. he opens up his coat and he pulls out an entire box of tissues. Yep. Which is awesome. It's such a funny move. And yeah. then he puts the whole box back in his pocket. Like, he is of such. Of course, you have the entire box. He's such a fucking nerd, like, about yeah. this. Like, a nerd, a geek, just a. An incredible, like, it makes sense that you don't have any friends at the office. It makes sense that you're getting taken advantage of yeah. by all of all of your bosses. And it makes sense that you would think that it's okay, that you would justify those responses. But let's go back to that idea as the everyman. He's getting taken advantage of by his bosses. Mm-hmm. How many times, and, and forgive me because I don't know the answer to this, but like, how often do the Tom Hanks or the Jimmy Stewart's of the everyman films do we see you being taken advantage of i just rewatched it's a wonderful life mm-hmm. recently i watched it with my mom and he's not being taken advantage of every decision he's making he's choosing to do now it's not the life he wanted mm-hmm. uh that's not what he envisioned rather but at every turn at every crossroads he, jimmy stewart's character makes a choice mm-hmm. to go that direction and i don't feel like he's being taken advantage of yeah and i'm trying to think of like um, just Tom doing, Hanks movies. Well, just even doing a little cursory thought of of Stewart, like Philadelphia Story, he's not being taken Mm-mm. advantage no, of. No, he's a writer, but like, he can't publish enough. Like, so he's a journalist now. Vertigo, he's kind of being taken advantage of by these crooks, mm. uh, but he's still actively engaged in his own sort of uh, psychopathy, like mm-hmm. his own his own like I'm a I'm a terrible kind of human being. He's being manipulated. Yes, but I don't. I think there's difference. Right in. I, I would say that like Tom Hanks, you could say uh, Forrest Gump is being manipulated by Jenny to some degrees, by her needs for him because he's always there for her. Uh, he's he's being manipulated by the system in in Pri- Save It Private Ryan because he and all these all of his uh, uh, his men have to go save. Yeah, this but even one that, person. he's the head of his troop, right? But he, and and he doesn't really have a choice. He can't disobey the order. Right. So like, but it, do, it doesn't ever feel like he's being taken advantage of. Whereas you definitely feel like Jack Lemmon's character is always being taken advantage of by somebody. Like some yeah. like it hot. Mm-hmm. You got him as a as a he plays the bass. Yeah, he, and and then they hap, just to get the car happen upon the mafia. Yeah, you know, and they got to get out of there and mm-hmm. and hide yeah. and hide out. Um, so it's just you know, and and they're so poor they can't eat. Mm-hmm. So you're right. Like as an everyman, it's a much more, it definitely feels like he doesn't have resources. Right. And I think that's a really interesting question. Like when was the last time we had an everyman that doesn't have resources? Right. Like, oh, I see a fun challenge ahead. Yeah. Like I even think of like comedies now, like I, I had somebody say to me recently that uh, the thing about Will Ferrell is he's always the smartest person in his in his films or he's always he's always exceptional at something in the films that he's doing mm-hmm. even though he comes across as a moron mm-hmm. and, and i i would say that there there are multitudes of this like even like something some a film that i love like knives out everybody is exceptional mm-hmm. at what they're doing even the the detective who just kind of stumbles into his into his answer into in that is exceptional in his willingness to listen like Perot is mm-hmm. like there's a uh there's an exceptionalism in film now like you I think it starts or it gets really solidified when superhero movies start mm. but like there's an exceptionalism that that even if you're down at your worst you are gonna be exceptional at something whereas I don't think CC Baxter is a, a, and and what the fuck is her character name Fran, Fran. Kublick Fran Kublick, like there's, I don't think there's going to ever be a time 
where they're the head of anything. No. I think that when we come to the end of the film and they're playing gin rummy in the most... It, so cute. So, uh, such an adorable moment. Like, that's going to be their life forever. Yeah. And it's going to be good for them. They're going to be happy. They're going to... They're gonna Every time they sit down to play that game, they're going to remember how they got here. Yeah. And and that's that in in of itself is a different form of exceptional. Like you like the memory that they created that is theirs through this through the the journey of this film is so much more hmm so much more gratifying because we get to spend all this time watching them grow and become people that we want to be that we that we that you hope you can be in that moment. You exactly. Hope you can step up in yeah. that moment and help her, even with a crush on her, to be like, no, he's he's a good person. Mm-hmm. Whoever was there, he was gonna do this for. Yeah. He just did more for Fran. Mm-hmm. But he would have stayed that whole night and walked all night long with the with the doctor. He would have found the doctor right away. He would have mm-hmm. whoever was overdosed in his apartment, he would have handled. And yeah. that's what makes him special. Yeah, and, and, and speaking to just to clarify that, like there's a the movie is two hours and five minutes long, and exactly like the halfway point of the film, Fran chooses to try to take her own life and takes a whole bunch of pills. And uh, and and Cece Baxter comes and finds her while he's brought home somebody else. Oh, she's so cute. Who who, who is an exceptional person who I'd love to come back to, and like they, and he saves her life, and he he chooses to take the brunt of the assault of verbal assault and emotional abuse that the people who are brought into the situation after his uh, discovery of her level upon him, some justly and some unjustly, but he chooses to take all of this and not be, and not be like, Hey, wait, you're you're wrong. This is actually what's going to happen. And that also is a really interesting kind of person, a, a person who, who I recognize in a lot of friendships that I've had who are just like, I'm, I'm willing to take this brunt because it's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be that good person next to you saying the, saying the, the, the right thing, even if that hurts me more and causes more trauma down the line. He's being a mensch. Yes. I love that line. He's uh-huh. being a mensch. He's being a human. So good. Mm-hmm. The thing that I, I mentioned earlier that I think is really, really important about this film. It's use of space. The film is not called C.C. Baxter or a love story or or something of that nature. It's called The Apartment. And by naming it The Apartment, it's making sure that we know that, one, this apartment that he lives in is the most important thing in the film. And that... And it, by, by proxy, I feel, it... It says that spaces are going to be really important. Like you look at Mr. Sheldrake's house, who mm-hmm. is the man who's having an affair with Mrs. with Fran, uh, and how how presentational and kind of opulent his place is. You look at the place where he works, where C.C. Baxter works, where he gets promoted to, and where he gets promoted above that too. Like you have a definite understanding of where these spaces are. Mm-hmm. And how they are improved upon, upon the last place that you were. Mm. And by the time we start spending most of our time in the apartment, we actually have a really good sense of space, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really important because when after Fran commits suicide and it is on her uh, on her way to recovery, it's a really wonderful scene that feels almost like a horror film shot to me when. When uh, Cece Baxter's on the phone to Mr. Sheldrake and behind him, you see the door to his bedroom that eventually gets slightly opened as Fran stumbles and uh, and trudges her way towards the phone. Mm -hmm. And it's just such an amazing long shot that shows you. It shows you the space. You see mm-hmm. his tiny kitchenette. You see the bedroom. You see the little living room that he's in. Compared to cutting to uh, Mr. Sheldrake's house, that you see this big, beautiful tree, this open open architecture to his house and all the space that's in it. Mm-hmm. And it's such an important kind of 
viewpoint to see how like one is really dark and yeah. one is really light. Yeah, his Sheldrick's house is very white, mm-hmm. bright, well lit, lots of windows probably. Mm-hmm. And so by the time we get to this point, it feels really important to have known what the apartment itself is so that we see it. We can see it in all of its forms as a place where you go to hide from your your spouse. You see it as a place where you can recover from your overdose, where you can learn to be a mensch, where you can have your neighbors who hear you. Like there's so much life that's given to this apartment by the time he's on the phone call that we are in a third character. We're with a third character at that point, I feel. And that brings me to some of the cinematography that I'd like to discuss. So because we're working in this apartment and we're working in this small space, the cinematography and the design of the space is such that, as you said, you can see through the whole apartment from one place to the other, mm-hmm. which is really important uh, for a lot of different reveals um, and for a lot of sense of space, as you said. But also I think what that shows is the, the way that they shot it, the cinematography of the whole film, all the way back to the first uh, scene you were discussing where he's ill on the phone mm-hmm. trying to organize all the different sex dates, sex dates. You really get a sense of where Roger Deakins swiped his style from. Yeah. So if you watch a Coen Brothers film after watching The Apartment, you're really going to see a very, very, very similar style mm-hmm. to the way that Billy Wilder was having his films shot. This um, tight shot that gave... Uh, that brings a lot of humor as you move closer to the camera, as the hand moves closer to the camera and then further away. Mm-hmm. Absurdity of being right in the center. We're right there in front of C.C. Baxter all the time. Mm-hmm. He's right there as, as if he's talking to us. Yep. We're in the center of and, the shots. And he starts off giving us a narration, yep. which doesn't continue through the rest of the no, film. No, it's just at the beginning. Yeah, it, it's, it is actually as much of, uh, as much as voiceover can be a crutch or, or a useless thing. It really it really does a great job of isolating him as the voice that we're going to care about and showing us how both kind of caring he is for his job and how isolated he is because he knows all these useless fucking facts. Yeah. This is spitting out facts. But it centers him as it as centers. A super nerd. Yeah. It centers him as a voice in the film, even before we get to centering him as a character in the film. Hmm. Yeah. The narration. Mm hmm. I hadn't thought about it like that. I like that. Oh, one of the things that's really valuable about the style of cinematography that they choose is it allows for a whole bunch of space around Jack Lemmon. And and not just him, but every character has generally space to move in. So it's not really tight close-ups of anything. There aren't, in fact, a lot of uh, signature uh, like insert shots of of anything in specific the the ones that they do have are really really stand out like when we see Fran's mirror her broken mirror how she sees herself and how that how that moment of having one slight insert affects so much change within the film mm-hmm. I think it's a really good use of keeping distance from everybody it's not like things aren't dropped off like so when like in a different film, maybe a lesser film, Mr. Sheldrake, every time he pulled out cash, there'd be a cat like a sh- insert of how much money he had. Like mm-hmm. when he's paying off when he's paying their dinner at uh, at the little restaurant that he and Fran go to, mm-hmm. like we would see how much cash he would show so that we could see that he has uh, affluence and, and power and, and, and whatnot. But the film's not interested in that narrative. Their kind of affluence, their power is very much uh, felt, but not, let's say, fetishized. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has something that kind of ties into one of the other things that we think about the film, which is that it does a really interesting job, regardless of what it was, whether it was trying to do this or not, doing like showing the toxicity of the of the work environment at this time in America. Mm -hmm. Toxic masculinity ruins the party again. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, kind of a microcosm. Well, not microcosm. It's just a slice of 1960s, late 1950s, shitty masculinity 
in the work environment. It is just purely patriarchy from the top down Mm -hmm. and the way that women are sexually harassed Mm -hmm. and given no protection Mm -hmm. and talked about in the most disgusting of ways and um, the way that men are treating each other. There's just, there's just pure patriarchal bullshit. Mm -hmm. And of course, not even to mention the fact that this is just an exclusively white film. Mm -hmm. We, we have the shoe shine guy is -hmm. black. And then there's a janitor who's black. Mm Mm-hmm. They have no names, they have no lines, they have no story. Mm-hmm. It's just white guys shitting on other white guys and sexually harassing women. Yeah. And and to be a little bit more specific about that, do you want to elaborate a little bit on the type of jobs that the that women have in this film versus what what the men have? Mm, absolutely. They are the elevator operators, mm-hmm. uh, which is what Fran Kublik does, because as she said, she went through secretarial school um, and is very good at typing and is very bad at spelling. So then the next option is if you're lucky. Yes. And Austin is one of those people <laughs> as well. Um, but being a white dude, it didn't bother your career. No, it didn't hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> Though I really shouldn't speak. That's my spelling. <laughs> Has been known to be incorrect on many political ads yeah. in our past. We're, we are all role models when it comes to spelling. Spelling. <laughs> We've had spell check for a very long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you could be a secretary where you can be ogled and harassed by men. You can be the elevator operator where you can be ogled and harassed by men in even smaller quarters than an office. Um, you can be the phone operator mm-hmm. where you can be sexually harassed by men over the phone. Um, you have the opportunity to do about that. And then I think they had some they uh, they had some women working in the same office as CC Baxter in his mm-hmm. first position. So I'm guessing that was maybe they were secretaries to the other guys, maybe they were at the same level as him. They're ill-defined. They don't have any the women are are barely in this film. Yeah. Having roles that have any kind of Fran is the only one that mm-hmm. gets to be fully fleshed out. Mm-hmm. But you have you have uh, Mr. Sheldrake's uh, secretary. Miss Olson? Miss Olson, mm-hmm. yes. Who's fucking amazing. She's so good. Her tiny little scenes, mm-hmm. she crushes them. Yeah. She, she really takes it out. Um, yeah. And that you, you can give the credit to Billy Wilder being like creating scenes where these performers can perform. Mm-hmm. But like, let's not take it away from the women as being amazing actors. Yeah. And, and, and it's not to confuse this film with being some sort of feminist tome. It's just... Like the film itself has lasted long enough that we can now look at it as an artifact of what it is and enjoy it for what it does, but also see how it, whether intentionally or not, captures a moment really, really well. Mm-hmm. Like those people in it, like like we know, we can really see what people talk about when they're like, oh yeah, I'd really like to get back to the good old days when we could mm. do that. And you're like... Really, that those the the good old days where women just operated elevators and uh, and your phone and mm-hmm. watched the new model of them walk through the door or take messages for them uh, as they continued to work for you. Cool. Well, this is an interesting thing that you're bringing up, which is, is it the women that propel the film forward? Mm-hmm. Because it is right. It's yeah. Fran attempting suicide. So she propels the film forward mm-hmm. because now everything's different. Mm-hmm. It is a Miss Olsen calling Miss Mrs. Sheldrake and being like, hey, FYI, I'm tired of your husband being a piece of shit for the last four years. You're going to know about it because he's such a scumbag. Yeah. Here's your story. So that propels the film forward and propels Fran Fran's experience as well because mm-hmm. of having to actually deal with Mr. Sheldrake on a realistic level and realize he's a scumbag. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it seems like the actions of the women mm-hmm. keep pushing the story forward, even though it's C.C. Baxter's story. Yeah. It really it, does feel like. I, I would even say that the, the the doctor's wife has more of an impact in that prop- yes. propulsion of narrative than the doctor. The doctor is willing to sweep under the rug. Well, I don't even know. Like, I can't tell why she took those pills. Like, I, it's not something that... I can't that, prove it. I can't prove it. So he's... He, as much as he talks about being a mensch and being a good person, he does not change... Uh, want to change the hierarchy of what this is. 
Like he does not want to change or break the cycle of what's going on. He'll comment on it and he'll make you feel like shit about it. But his, it's his wife who's like, who's just like, I don't fucking give a sh- two shits about you. Like that poor girl in there, she needs all my attention. You, you're lower than dirt. Mm-hmm. Like, like you're prehistoric. Fuck off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does. That's, it is interesting to think about the roles of women and them having at this time, having an opportunity to have a voice mm-hmm. um, and be showcased, even if they're not the main characters. Yeah. The storyline with the woman that he meets in the bar on Christmas night. Yeah. Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. When she's talking about her husband and writing letters to Castro and he won't write back because he's such a dork and he mm-hmm. won't write her. The guy with the beard. I like <laughs> It's... <laughs> it's such a good because he's a jockey and he's like cheating yeah but i just i love her she's so you know she's she's straight out the gate i'm married and i'm i'm happy to have a love affair tonight yeah because i'm alone and i don't know when i'm gonna see my partner again mm-hmm. and if ever yeah and this is just my reality mm-hmm. and which is actually that's even something interesting to think about for, first, to finish that, I love her. I love her performance. I think she's amazing. I think yeah. we talked about it once before that she was originally auditioning to play Marilyn. Yeah, she she had been cast as the Marilyn part, but Billy Wilder decided to re-audition her for this part because he thought she was really funny. Yeah, she's so funny. She's and, so funny. Her she's, she's physicality so, matches Jack Lemmon. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a great scene when they meet and she's at the bar and he's at the bar and it's just a two-shot and it feels like... Like an old time throw a punch, like throw a setup, hit a punchline. Just mm-hmm. like these these two old like vaudeville esque performers, or even like the, uh, what you were talking about for your first introduction of uh, of Jack Lemon. It almost feels like the same uh, rapport that Lemon and Walter Matthau have. Mm-hmm. Like here's here's a setup, here's the punchline. Here's a setup, here's the punchline. Drink and they drink in unison, and it's like that shot is beautiful. Yeah, it is exceptionally well done. Yeah. And vaudeville, yeah. Definitely there's elements of vaudeville mm-hmm. in the performances here. Mm-hmm. Just the spark of it, the yeah. last kind of sparks of it before yeah. it all kind of dies out. I, I love how the film is so, like, does not judge her for Mm-mm. wanting to be, or being openly poly. Because we don't know Mm-mm. anything about her relationship with, with the with uh, the jockey other than he's in prison and they're married. And then she's going to call him yeah. right after this and tell her husband exactly how she was treated. Mm-hmm. So I think they have an open relationship. Yeah. It's, it's really, really progressive in, in, in that sense of how they, how she's presented. I think that in general, in this film, there is an openness to sex and what it, like everybody is doing it. And while there's judgment on, you're married and you're having an affair. Mm-hmm. There's that judgment um, on the men mm-hmm. specifically yeah, because they're in the place of power. Yeah. There, there is also a sense of like, this is just what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's society that has put it so that these guys, I guess, can't get hotel rooms mm-hmm. to meet with these women. I'm unclear about that. If that was at the time you weren't allowed to have a hotel room without right. your partner being your wife or if they just didn't want to have it on their car, like essentially they they wouldn't have credit cards back then, but mm-hmm. don't have a record that you were sleeping with. I think it was you weren't allowed to. It could be. Because he the Sheldrick talks about how he's staying at like the men's. The YMCA. YMCA. And, and you can't have women there. And mm-hmm. so he needs the apartment still. Yeah. So there's just an interesting idea of like the underbelly of what sex is at mm-hmm. this time. And there isn't. There's some judgment, but mostly it's just sort of like, it's just what it is. And I find that refreshing because I think too quickly hereafter, there's just so much shame mm-hmm. that's put on everything. And and there's an interesting line, like, I, I agree with you, like, and there's an interesting line that's a difference between Mr. Sheldrake and the rest of Mr. Dobish and the rest mm-hmm. of the, those guys. All those men are really, really honest with the women that they're taking to the apartment about they're married. And Sheldrake is as well. But Sheldrake is the only one we see talking about how he's going to leave his wife. Right. The rest of them openly... You're special. Yeah. The rest of them openly talk about how they wouldn't take anybody but this person there. Like, they're like they're, they're still talking about their wives in a way that feels like they're never going to leave. 
and this is a fling and both parties know that it's a fling and that the women are like, if it's going to be a fucking fling, you're going to pay for my cab home. Mm -hmm. You're going to owe me the money for that. And you're going to fucking treat me right. Like, like this is a fling for both of us. It may lead to something, but fuck that. Whereas Fran and Sheldrake have this relationship where he's leading her on viciously, incredibly meanly in his in his need to control her. Ow! And Preston is biting me right now. Preston. No biting. Attack the back. That's not nice. She can't fight from the back. Okay. This interruption brought to you by Preston the cat, who's bored and annoyed at us. Even though he's already had dinner and doesn't need to be. Yeah. You're such an asshole. Butthead. Um... Oh. Yeah, there is there. Th- yes, I agree with you, and I think that there is more openness towards sex in general within the other relationships because you see, I think Mr. Dobish's date or one of the guys dates, um, who's the phone operator. Mm-hmm. She's like fake stripping at the holiday party. Yeah, you you see a lot of other people making out. Like, there's a sense of of you know kind of open sexuality to a certain degree again these women are all getting massively sexually harassed by these guys yeah and they have no hope mm-hmm. of getting above secretary right so and then they can just get fired because yeah. they're not willing to keep having sex or because they're not willing to whatever keep fill in their the mouth blank, shut right like yeah. there's just this constant yeah volatility the the power struggle in the film of that is really really clear like that women have a certain ceiling that they'll have that they can that they can reach. Yes, it's extraordinarily low, and you can yep. touch it while you're on your knees. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Phrasing. This <laughs> meant that way. <laughs> um, but so that's toxic masculinity ruining the party again. Yeah. And I like that Billy Wilder spends time showing it and mm-hmm. doesn't gloss over it or glamorize it. Which I'll be honest, I didn't watch all of Mad Men, and I know that they definitely were trying to showcase it, but it was really glamorized. Yeah. It was really glamorized this time, whereas I don't feel like it is here. And I think that's in part because we spend our time with CeCe Baxter, mm-hmm. not with Mr. Sheldrick. He's not the lead. Also, it's because we spend two hours with this instead of uh, 11 hours or 13 hours of the first te- first season. Like, it's right. not like like the time frame that we spend with the character also allows for a certain amount of ignorance about them as well as uh, specificity on what we want to tell. Whereas mm-hmm. on, on a show on a television show, like Mad Men or even like Breaking Bad or the Sopranos, there's, there's an element of having to create a character that is likable so that you can spend seven seasons with them. Yeah. And that even if they're a despicable human being, like uh, Walter White is like, there's going to be, oh, he's doing it because of this and you're going to understand his reasons and you're going to get to a point where we're like, oh, we can understand why bad people do the things that they do rather than going, they're bad fucking people. Like, I don't give a shit about if if he had a bad childhood. It's like the Patton Oswalt joke. <laughs> I don't care about how ice cream was made. I just want my ice cream. Like, I don't care. I don't want to hear Darth Vader's backstory. I just want to see yeah. him be evil. Yeah. I don't really give a shit about why uh the joker is a bad dude like what kind of trauma he went to like i just kind of want to see the joker do joker things and then deal with them in a present tense and that we don't have to be like oh batman was sad and joker's sad and they're all sad mm-hmm. like like i don't like it just is so frustrating it also leads to us all over glamorizing terrible people and accepting them as human beings when sometimes terrible people don't need to be seen as human beings because they're not mm-hmm. and they don't need to be president yeah and they don't need to run again yeah um and on that note yeah toxic masculinity do you do you want to talk a little bit about uh like the the kind of manic pixie dream guy that uh cc baxter c- kind of is yeah i do because we were talking about this yesterday. It's really interesting to have him be kind of a manic pixie dream boy, but as the lead. Mm-hmm. So if we think about last Christmas, which is what we talked about last in the last episode, you had Henry Golding play the manic pixie dream boy, but he wasn't really grounded in anything. And now you could argue that's because he's a ghost, but um, 
it's also just kind of the trope yeah. the manic pixie dream girl she's just sort of wee whimsical and she she you never know what she's gonna do she's and... gonna take the sullen character and make them see how important life is yes and so when you brought that up yesterday that really jack lemon's character is kind of a manic pixie dream boy because he is unpredictable and he's ha- not unpredictable but he's spontaneous mm-hmm. and he's happy and he's so excited to be around fran mm-hmm. and so while she's the sullen one mm-hmm. and is not the lead character mm-hmm. unlike in last christmas yeah where amelia clark was the sullen one and the one whose life was falling apart mm-hmm. fran is also sullen and her life is also falling apart but she's not the lead yeah and um you do have jack lemon being the manic pixie dream boy yeah um, and ha- and his his manic energy, his excitement, it's it's fun, but it's grounded in a story and an, and in a background without giving too much of his backstory, which we don't know mm-hmm. beyond his one suicide attempt. Um, I don't know. It's just delightful. Yeah. It and it's interesting because like he is so like maybe like this ties into his movements, like how fluid and consistent his movements are. How he he has a. Uh, has a tennis racket for his uh, uh, his his strainer for mm-hmm. his pasta. Like there's just like he's got all of these incredible quirks that make sense in the world that he's living in. Mm-hmm. Like unlike the Henry Golden character, like who's we don't ever understand why he looks up, why he's doing these other things. It's not grounded in a, in a personality. Mm-hmm. It like when we spend time with kind of this manic character that that cc baxter is we can really really see how clearly why he's the way he is like when he's like when he has fran over when when she's recovering and and they're sitting down to cook dinner and she's like do you cook dinner on your own all the time he's like yeah you know sometimes i have uh some guests over and he makes a great uh joke about may west but she was younger then Mm -hmm. uh and he's just talking about the programs that he's watching on television. And we have a scene earlier seeing him make a, uh, a version of a TV dinner where he's just sitting down to watch Grand Hotel that'll never start because there's fucking too many adverts. So and, many advertisements. And, and I think all of us can can now relate to that when yeah. we all d- pay the extra fee to be on Hulu without ads or or Kino Cult without ads. We're like, oh, no, no, I don't want, I don't want to be interrupted. I, 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 I'd, I'd prefer just to... Just to see the thing and not have the fucking thing come before it that tells me that, you know, Aaron Rodgers is a fucking dickhead in uh, in State Farm commercials. Although I would watch a commercial for cons- Consolidated Life. Yes. Because what a great name for their company. Yes. It is. Like, the, the place that CeCe Baxter works is Consolidated Life. And that is an exceptionally named like it's really funny exceptionally named like that is that is somebody who's sitting around at a typewriter going what is the shittiest most like reductive way that we could have a life insurance company be named oh consolidated life yeah and thank you and good day all all of your life (laughs) at our hands here you go here's your money no uh oh you're dead now and i think that it's it's fun having him be that character because he brings so much energy Mm mm-hmm his physicality of course but just in general his like positivity his life energy when he's packing up at the end of his apartment and moving on and you're just we're all so proud of him be like yes mm-hmm. like good for you get the fuck out of here get the fuck out of these memories yeah restart somewhere new yes and, and he doesn't know where he's gonna go he just knows he's gonna do it you just get the sense of pride in him for making the change <laughs> and it, it, nothing ever feels like right turns that mm-hmm. he's making he never feels like what why did he make that choice as you were saying with henry golding why does he look up mm-hmm. why is that his slogan why is that on the placard on the bench mm-hmm. it's his thing that he said yeah. but we don't know it's not that we need to have his backstory so much that we know why he does it it just it just feels like it's so cute it's yeah. like oh my god it's so cute that he's like yeah. look up so everybody should look up yeah. and you know she makes fun of him for being super cute but she still falls for him. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is helpful because it's in her body. Mm-hmm. Um, that old heart. Uh, but <laughs> not, not something else. Yes. Um, <laughs> but where does Baxter's positivity come from? It's he his core self. Yeah. He is a positive dude who's always looking for the best. But you know, it keeps life keeps hitting him. Because he's so kind, because mm-hmm. he shares, he gets into the situation because he's like, oh, you need to change before you need to go to an event, coworker? Yeah. Well, here are my keys. Like, no big deal. 
oh, well, then it devolves into this thing because oh. he's a guy who gets taken advantage of. Yeah. But he still stays positive because he's a positive dude. He's a person who gets took. He is a person that gets took. I love that line. Mm-hmm. The people that take and people that get took. Mm-hmm. And I'm somebody who gets took. And that is why he's a better everyman because she is also a person who gets took. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why she's also relatable. Because, yeah. Because we want to hope for those moments where the person says the really romantic thing that makes us believe that they're going to be the person for us, even though most times when the person who says that only really wants one thing. That's the way the cookie crumbles. That's, that's no, the that's the way it, it crumbles, crumbles cookie-wise. Cookie-wise. It's so cute. Yeah, it's so fucking cute. Well, so Fran, like very melancholy, very sad, very much struggling mm-hmm. with her depression and with her sense of self like obviously so upset about the fact that she couldn't be a secretary Mm -hmm. that the most she's gonna do is be an elevator operator except for unbeknownst to her it's like minutes away from it becoming automated yeah and then her really losing her career yet like the performance of shirley mclean is so genuine Mm -hmm. she's so fucking not just because she's so fucking cute which she is so fucking cute Mm -hmm. but it's just like really comes from a place where it seems like She's still so new to the world and all of this is new and exciting, even if it's really fucking hard. She's trying her best. I don't know. There's something about her performance. It just feels really authentic. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, the work, the two of them together just really bounce off each other so well. It feels really present. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like immediate, like what is happening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a, there's something really genuine and honest about the immediacy of what of how she's reacting in the moment. It doesn't feel staged. It doesn't feel coached. It doesn't feel like this is what I should do. It doesn't feel reserved. It feels like, oh, so this is happening. I'm just going to respond. Like, I'm going to tell you honestly, you're the you're the nice person who uh, who always takes off their hat in the, mm-hmm. in, in the, the elevator. Or here, you deserve to have my flower on your... Uh, on your uh, lapel. Lapel. Because you're going in to talk to the boss. Like... And make sure you wipe your nose. Like, like there's something really genuinely honest and kind about how she's seeing people. It's like she's she's seeing everybody for who they are, except for herself, which she judges even harsher. Like, yep. she doesn't judge it as I'm a person who's trying to uh, just make the best right now. She's like, I'm a terrible person. She's like, the first 15 minutes when you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, I'm a terrible person. I hate myself. I'm going to doom scroll for a while. Like, it seems like she's living that life for herself until until she has a reason to stop believing that 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 nonsense about herself. And I think she I think what's interesting is that point that she stops believing that nonsense for herself. Yeah. She chooses to look at Sheldrick and realize that he's a garbage bag. Mm-hmm. And it's not that she doesn't deserve to do better than a garbage bag, but mm-hmm. that she realizes, I don't need to take this anymore. I don't need to be around this guy. So he left his wife and, ew. You know, when you think about it, you guys dated for two months, sweet pea. Like, yeah. do not commit suicide over a guy if you dated for two months. Right. It, yeah. <laughs> but the speed of things moved differently back then. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, I love her choosing for herself. Yeah. And I do love, by the way, also the repetition of her coming up the stairs and she hears the champagne pop and she thinks he's... Shot, shot himself, himself yeah that it mimics exactly him coming up the stairs and finding out that the gas there's a gas leak mm-hmm. or he thinks that maybe she's trying to kill herself again so you have this two running up the stairs no no yeah and trying to get to them uh to the other person so i love that parallel right before they go in and play gin rummy for yeah. one more time yeah and deal for a really, really long time as the end credits roll. Oh yeah, until he gets her to crack. <laughs> they start so obvious yeah. that he got her to crack. It's so it's so fucking adorable. They're just like, stop! I will not stop the scene because I'm laughing. Yeah, their their energy together is exceptional. Yeah, they're just so adorable. Yeah, it's a really, really good film. Yeah, a perfect New Year's Eve film. Yeah, it, it's an it's a wonderful film for the reasons that we've described, but also because I just like at the end, I feel so human. I feel like I recognize so many positive things about humanity in it that it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel trite. I've uh, like the, the happiness that they have at the end for dealing cards to each other feels earned. Then I guess we would say part of what makes them both the every man, the every woman is 
their authenticity and the fact that they they have to work so hard to like themselves. Yeah. They both beat themselves up a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think we all beat ourselves up a lot. And so it's a wonderful New Year's film because it, as we start the new year and we all kind of reflect on the year ahead and ask ourselves, what resolutions are we going to make? How are we going to change to be better? This film that makes you feel so human is such a good reminder that you can't beat yourself up all the time, mm-hmm. that you should try to see yourself as others see you and as you wish to be seen, see yourself that way mm-hmm. and re- go grab the shit you want. Yeah. I couldn't say it better. Thank you. So Austin, are there any films you'd like to share to stumble upon next? Yeah, I think in the spirit of of the apartment and humanity, like I know it's past Christmas, but like I think it's still probably the 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 other film that I really feel is a wonderful touchstone to my empathy, and it's uh, the Muppets Christmas Carol. Like honestly, like that film, like it breaks my heart every time I watch it. I cry every time I watch it. Michael Caine is so fucking good in that. Like mm. I don't like. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a better performance by anybody than Michael Caine performing with a bunch of puppets, <laughs> doing heartfelt yeah. and mean line readings. Like, he's so fucking good in that film. Like, everything about that film, like, it's like it, it reminds me of Miyazaki's best work as well, of just this incredible understanding of the human condition and how in the absurdity of creation... Uh, especially for for film creation, you can have a, a man talking to a bunch of puppets and feel a lot of feelings. Mm-hmm. There's just something, there's something so glorious about the absurdity of that that I just like watching it again over the holiday season. I was just like, yeah, this fucking film, this perfect. fucking film is perfect. It's perfect. It's everything Charles Dickens imagined. Yeah, and then more. Yeah. Michael Caine, as you said, I think you told me once that it was Michael Caine's favorite film mm-hmm. that and, he ever and, made, and that he told uh, Brian Henson when he was cast that I was going to give, I'm going to be serious, like these are serious actors. That's how I'm going to play it. Like they're really people. And it's like it fucking works. It like, works so well. It's so good. I know. It's so so good. Every actor that gets to work with Muppets uh-huh. moving forward should always mm-hmm. reflect on Michael Caine's performance yeah. in this film. Yeah. So if somehow you haven't seen it yet. Or if you haven't seen it in a couple of years and you're like, oh, it's past Christmas. Fuck you. Watch it. <laughs> yeah. Fuck you. Watch it. Um, do you have something that you'd like to to, to stumble upon? Yeah, I would. Um, it's, in, it's starting its fourth season soon, but it's the BBC show Ghosts. And I am specific, very specifically telling you to watch the BBC version. There's a new one that's coming out in America. It's out right now. Oh, it's out right now? Yeah. I think that's CBS or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Don't even care. It doesn't matter. I do love some of the actors that are in the American version, but I'm still telling you to not even talk about that. Don't even look at me. Don't talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. And go watch the BBC version of Ghosts. Because it's, first of all, it's the performers that are playing the ghosts are the creators of the show and are the writers. So you're getting the best performers yeah. Yeah. for this specific story. This is their damn story. Yeah. Um, but also, you also get three seasons to jump into mm-hmm. that... The American version doesn't have yet. So you've got three seasons to jump in and enjoy and binge. But it's really good. The storyline basically is a young couple gets uh, an inheritance of a manor house in rural England. And after the first in the first episode, she falls and gets injured. And when she kind of comes out of her coma, discovers that she can see all the ghosts that are inhabiting her very old manor. Mm-hmm. And the comedy ensues from there. Mm-hmm. It is fun. It is heartfelt. It is awkward. It is, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Thomas the poet, 18th century poet, is absolutely my favorite character. Uh-huh. Although the eight, the 80s guy with the, <laughs> the 80s character with, uh, that's the troop, what is he, the club? Yeah, like the. The Boy Scout. Boy Scout troop. Yeah, leader, leader. With yeah. an arrow through his neck. Oh, God, that guy's great, too. Yep. Or the MP with no pants. Yep, who. Who stars in one of our other favorite shows, The Detectorist. Oh, yeah, Which we'll probably recommend at some other point. But We'll recommend it right now. The Detectorist is another great show you should absolutely watch. It is it is the lowest stake show that you could watch. If you're like, yes. do I want my stakes to be barely off the ground? Here you go. Yes, Mackenzie Crook from Pirates of the Caribbean. It's his baby. It's his creation. It's and, he the wrote British, it. and the British office. Oh, yes. He was in the office. Yeah. So it's his baby. He mm-hmm. directed it. He wrote it. 
Toby Jones, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's his best friend. Yeah. And they are metal detectorists. Yep. And they will make sure you know that they are not metal detectors. Yeah. But detectorists. Yeah. It's it's pedantic in an adorable way. It's awesome. It's very British. Yep. I love British humor. Mm-hmm. That is part of my core self. Yep. And so, yeah, go watch BBC Ghosts TV show. You're yes. welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. So, as always, you can find us on Instagram mm-hmm. at Fishtown Films. As we told you last time, our trailer for our movie Citywide has come out and it is on our Instagram. So you oh. should definitely check it out. Yep. We'll post in our stories the next film that we'll be doing in the new year. Mm-hmm. And um, we would love to hear from you. You should slide into our DMs and let us know any requests you have. Mm-hmm. And we just really want to wish you a very happy new year. Yeah. But fuck 2021. Yeah, it's time to move on. Yeah. Let's tackle 2022. Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Probably not that much. Yeah. But you know what? Let's all go in with positive attitudes. Let's channel our inner CC Baxter. Yeah. And have a safe and happy new year. Take care. <laughs>